you want to open up to Matthew chapter 11 this morning, we are going to continue with our series, our rest series, as we dive into a very famous passage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, where he speaks and tells others to come to him. And as you're turning to Matthew 11, I I want you to think of something for a minute. Just think of this question in your mind. I'm not going to answer it, but can you help someone who doesn't want to be helped? Can you help somebody who doesn't want to be helped? I think I've shared this uh, illustration before, but there's this thing that people do over in Africa when they have elephants nearby. They'll drive a little stake in the ground, and they will uh, tie it off, and tie a piece of string off to a post with an elephant. And then they'll take that little piece of twine and they'll wrap it around the elephant's ankle. And they will tie him off. And an elephant looks at that and knows that they're attached to something. And they are afraid to try to pull away. This mighty elephant that can definitely pull that thing over. But because they're afraid and because of their fear, they will stay there. Fear does that in our minds. It binds us. And if I can get this off my foot. It binds us and it keeps us attached to something that we no longer have to carry. Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave now lives within us. And so whatever Satan has us bound by or heavy laden by, it is really insignificant compared to the power of Christ. And this morning as we get to Matthew chapter 11, if you're there with me, and we're going to go back to verse 25 through 30, and we're going to read this, and if you would stand here with me in a moment, we're going to read this together and reset the stage for the context of what Jesus is saying when he comes. And the title of the message this morning is going to be, Is the Come Urgent? When Jesus speaks of coming, is this something urgent that he is saying? So verse 25 through 30 of Matthew chapter 11. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. We just sang that, didn't we? That you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of being able to come to you. Whatever we're weary with, whatever burden we're carrying, you don't call us to get ourselves fixed or even to come to you just so that we will be fixed, but to come to you with it all, whatever the particular burden is. And Father, I pray as we continue to dive into this series this morning and we, we look at these words and what Jesus is saying, that your Holy Spirit will just peel back what perhaps Satan has ensnared us to believe in our hearts. Some burden, something that perhaps we've carried for a very long time that we no longer have to carry because of you. Father, I just pray that you will take this message and by your Spirit that you will apply it individually to each and every one of us where we are at in the way that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Uh, Last week, we focused on verse 25 through 27 of our passage. And we saw that uh, we are chosen by God. We really dove into Romans 8 as well. And we saw that we have been called to be children of God. Jesus made the way. He's the only way to the Father. And our Heavenly Father, through the Son, has called us to be adopted as His children, as sons and daughters of God. And therefore, our worth and our value has nothing to do with our performance or the ability of what we can do on our own. And it also has nothing to do with our intellect. Verse 25 talks about how God hides these things from the wise and the prudent. Just having more intelligence is not what we need when we come to Christ. Rather, our identity is based in faith, what Jesus has done for us and his draw to us in the gospel. But Satan likes to ensnare us with lies that enslave us. 
and bring us back under bondage rather than living in the freedom of being a child of God, which is our calling and is our new identity. And if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, this one is not in your notes this morning, but I want you to see this with your own eyes as we open up. Isaiah chapter 53, the famous chapter where Jesus is going to have his sufferings described, what he's going through here is going to be described, what he went through for us. And I want you to find verses 4 and 5 with me. Because we learn here that Jesus not only bore our sins on the cross, but he also bore our sorrows and our griefs. He took the burdens that we so often carry. He understands them. Isaiah chapter 53, 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's the things we've done that are wrong, our sins we've committed. He was bruised for our iniquities, the shame that we carry, and the chastisement, the discipline, for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And so we see that Jesus not only has borne our sin, but he enters into the realm of our sorrows and our suffering and the griefs that we all carry, different ones. And rather than living as slaves to those burdens, we now are called to live as children of God. And he loves us even with our burdens and even despite them. We're going to see that this morning. Because many times this passage in Matthew 11, our main text, is taken to tell people, well, you got an issue or you got a burden in your life, just take it to Jesus and everything will get better. That's actually not what the passage is saying. It is saying to come to the Lord with whatever is going on. That even in the midst of our burdens, He loves us. Even when we're difficult, even when we're weary, and even when we're in pain, He doesn't turn us away. He calls us to come to Him. He calls us to bring that to Him. This morning, we're really going to zero in on verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11. And our main focus is really going to be that first word, come. That first word, come. We see Jesus begins with three words in this verse, come to me. And in your notes this morning, Jesus' call is his invitation. I'm going to speak a lot about his invitation to come to him as the call that he continues to call out to us. We're going to have that type of framework as we walk through the passage this morning. But when he says, come to me, it's an invitation. It's his, him calling out to us to come to him. And secondly, in verse 28, we come to the second point, And I want you to notice the urgency of the call. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice that there is an urgency underlying what Jesus is saying. In the original Greek, it's, this word come is actually an imperative. So to go all the way back to you know, English class, 7th, 8th grade, maybe high school, remember when you have to look at all the verbs, are they action verbs, etc., what type of verb is it? This word come is an imperative, which means it's a command. It's like come exclamation point in the original language. It means to come hither, it means to come follow, it means to come over here type thing. To come here and learn a new way of life with me rather than the way that you're living life. And I want to reset the stage for us a couple weeks ago of earlier on in this passage how what Jesus is saying in context has been issued to several different groups. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 11, we see John sending a couple of his disciples to ask Jesus a question because John is in prison and John is bearing some burdens. He has some questions and some doubts about how this messianic role in this ministry of Jesus is playing out. And Jesus' response to John, through the emissaries that he sends, is to come and see what I'm doing. Am I not fulfilling what Scripture said? Then Jesus turns to the crowd, and he begins to affirm John's ministry and praise what God has done through the ministry of John the Baptist. And Jesus then issues an invitation to the crowd to come and consider, was John's ministry from God? Is Jesus, his own ministry, also from the Father? He poses this question to the crowd and calls them to come and consider this. He then turns, and in John the Baptist style, Jesus also rebukes the unrepentant. He decries the cities that have rejected him. And he is basically telling them, come before it is too late. And then we come to 25 through 30, which we've just read this morning, where Jesus is issuing a call of discipleship. To those who are hearing what he is saying, 
to those who are longing to come to him, whose ears are ready to hear and whose heart is open to receive, he is calling them to a new kind of life, to a new kind of learning. He says, to learn of me. And we're going to dive into that this morning. But I want us to also notice that Jesus' call in Matthew 11 is not just a call for people back then. It's not just a call for John the Baptist in response to his question. It's not just an invitation to that crowd that was hearing him share with him in that day. It's not just a rebuke of those to come before it's too late who are rejecting him. And it's not only a call to discipleship that is just written down here a long time ago. But it is a call that comes to us. And if you would turn to Revelation 22, 17, the very last chapter in your Bible, and very close to the last verse, Revelation 22 and chapter 17, it's very interesting how the same word, and in the New King James here, it does render this word come with an exclamation point. It is a call that is sent to us today. To everyone who is thirsty for Jesus to come into their life and to work in whatever situation that they are bearing. There is a call both by the Spirit of God and through the church. We both issue this same call in partnership with the Lord. The message is going out to come. Revelation 22, 17. And the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's the church, say come. And let him who hears say come. And let him who thirsts Come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. So the question is, are we thirsty? There's no precondition. There's no preconditions here. It's simply as if you're thirsty, just come. There's nothing we have to do. There's nothing we have to get rid of before we simply come to Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, which is also not in your notes, John tells us, but to all who did receive him, to everyone who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You see, when we become believers, we now have a a right because we believed in Christ. We believed in his name. We have a right to become the children of God, to have a new identity. But most of us, we are born into this world. Actually, all of us are born into this world as one minister has put it, with a broken identity. We live in a fallen and broken world. We are sinners by nature and by choice, are we not, from the very beginning. And so we enter into this life believing lies and having an identity not rooted in the security of how God sees us because we don't know the Lord when we enter this world. That's later on. And for many of us, even though we receive Christ and we believe in His name, Satan's really good at ensnaring the believer to not rest in the right that they have to be a child of God. Rather, to keep us enslaved to strongholds, to burdens, to areas of our life where we have given Satan a foothold. One way that I have learned this, and and there are many ways in which we come to believe lies. We, We can come to believe a lie of the enemy because of our own heart. Don't try to discover yourself. That is a recipe for disaster. Disney tells us to believe in ourselves, but the Bible says you cannot listen to your heart because it is deceitful and desperately wicked. Finding your heart is not a good thing. The world and so many voices that we tend to trust, rather than focusing on what our Heavenly Father says about us, will drown out who we are in Christ. It will keep us bound to a lie. The devil's accusation, he is the accuser of the brethren. His mission is to destroy us. His mission is to completely destroy God's work in our life. And he does everything he can to keep us bound and not resting in who we are in Christ. And so he accuses us. And that results in us believing lies at times. One lie, and it took me years to even understand this, that Satan got me to believe. It's just this little whisper in my mind most of my life that you'll never be good enough. Have you ever believed a lie like that? That you will never be enough. And it's true. It's true in the sense we never can save ourselves, can we? We never can be good enough. Our righteousness is never enough. That's true. But Satan comes clothed as an angel of light. He will twist God's word. And he'll get you to focus on only half of the truth. And when you do that, when we give him a foothold, he will then then get a stronghold and a foothold in our life. And so how did I respond to that? People respond different ways. How did I respond to constantly hearing that lie and believing it? To just push myself harder and harder and 
harder. Overwork, I was always a go-getter, I was always driven, and it pushed me to the edge of breakdown. Burdened and weary, you better believe it. But we can come to Jesus with those things. And he doesn't say, wait until you figure out what's going on. He says, come to me with your burden, come weary, and I will give you rest. And he replaces the lies that we are believing as we learn of him. We come to trust in him and take on his yoke. And we come to be able to rest in that. So we can come broken and weary, whatever lie that we may particularly find ourselves believing. When we bring it to Jesus, it's not always instantaneous, but he begins a process of replacing the lie with the truth of what his word says. Because what we stand upon is not our own opinions or not our own hearts or not the things we've heard throughout our life. We must ground our life on this book. On what are his words and what has he said about us? So how do we preach the gospel to ourselves? I'll use that illustration. I, I said that there was the lie I believed that I'll never be enough. But the truth of God's word is that I am enough because clothed in the righteousness of his son, God has honored my faith in coming to him. And when he looks at me, he doesn't look at my performance. He sees the blood of Christ. And my worth is not dependent on how perfect I live. We kind of talked about this this morning in Sunday school when we looked at Abraham. Why was Abraham right with God? Not because of his own righteousness. He surely made mistakes, did he not? He was not perfect. His righteousness was because he believed in God. You see, Satan wants to get in edgewise and have us carry burdens over and over and over again to keep us bound and to keep us living yoked to Jesus like Jesus invites us to. So coming is an invitation and the prerequisite, I want you to notice that in verse 28, the prerequisite to Jesus' invitation is actually not feeling worthy, but rather recognizing your need. You're burdened, you're weary, and for that, not to devalue you, not to push you away, but rather that he wants you to come in the midst of you hurting. Thirdly, this morning, in verse 28, we also see the entirety of the call. The entirety of the call. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is an entire call. It's the entire person here. They're burdened, they're weary, and Jesus' invitation is, all of you, just as you are, come to me with it. It's an entire call of who we are as a person, not just part of us. And you see, that's what many of us, I think, tend to do. There's a part of our life where we recognize we need fixing, and we want to bring that part to Jesus, but we don't bring all of us. And when we do that, we're missing out on what Jesus is really saying to us and what he's really calling us to do. So wherever we are at and whatever else is ruling or mastering, whatever other yoke you are under, come even with those other things vying for your heart and your mind. That's what Jesus is saying. Even with those other things, you come to me. Now, you won't stay the same. Jesus will change those things. But many times, what we think is the biggest issue in our life is not really the biggest issue. There's something deeper. And Jesus knows that. And he wants to get to the root. And so he says, come to me and learn of me and take on my yoke. Come even with shame and uncertainty, whatever you are carrying, whatever burden you are carrying, and I will give you rest for your soul. Not just rest from whatever the symptom is that you may recognize, but true rest, the root of what is driving those things. You know, I heard something uh, this week that I thought was pretty good. And it was this little quote. It was, Satan is not creative. He's just effective. He uses the same lies over and over and over again. He's not really that creative. But we fall for it time and time and time again because he knows how to play to our weaknesses. If you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 6, we're going to turn to a passage, uh, both Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 31, I believe, which we're going to look at a couple times this morning, um, are passages that Jesus is actually alluding to, commentators will say, uh, when he issues his statement in Matthew 11. He's actually seeming to quote from some places back in Scripture. And I want you to see what happens in Jeremiah chapter 6 kind of before uh, something else does, before part of what Jesus is probably quoting in Matthew 11 is. And so what's happening in Jeremiah 6, as you're turning there, is war is getting ready to come upon the children of Israel. 
They're going to be conquered very soon. They've been rejecting the Lord over and over again. The children of God are choosing rather to follow the enemy and to choose other things rather than the Lord. And war is about to come and they're terrified. So Jeremiah chapter 6, find verses 24 through 25, and it says this. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. They were about to be invaded. Imagine what that would feel like. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor. Do not go out into the field, nor walk by the way, because the sword of the enemy, fear, is on every side. Now the Israelites were in a literal war. And they were going to lose that war because they refused to come to the Lord in the midst of it. They refused to come to him in the midst of it. And that's why they were going to be conquered. Because they had rejected him as a nation. They had chosen to serve idols and to cling to other things rather than the Lord. Now the reality is we may not be in a literal war, but the Bible says we are in a spiritual war. Are we just as terrified in how we're living as they were? Think about that. When we look at the world around us, are we more like this list of these two verses we just read? Is that more real in our life, or is coming to Jesus and resting in Him more real in our life? If you're still in Jeremiah, turn to chapter 31, if you will. Jeremiah chapter 31. And find verses uh, 23 through 28. Jeremiah 31, 23 through 28. Again, one of the passages that Jesus is most likely quoting from, alluding to, when he issues his statement in Matthew 11 that we opened with this morning. So later on in Jeremiah's prophecy, he begins to say this. He speaks of the hope. He speaks of the confidence, the, uh, the end that will be for believers ultimately later on when God works mightily on their behalf and when they turn back to him. Jeremiah 31, verses 23 through 28. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. See the similar language there to Matthew 11? After this, this is Jeremiah speaking, I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to throw down, to destroy, to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. And we're going to dive into the latter part of the, the teaching of this verse, basically, in principle later on, where it talks about how there was a season in which the Lord had to break them down in order to then later on be able to build them up. He had to break some things in their life that they were trusting in. And Jeremiah, who is going through all of the, uh, the time of preaching this message throughout his lifetime to the Israelites, he's experiencing rejection. They hunt him down. They hunt his life down multiple times. And in the midst of all of this, Jeremiah, many times in the book, is burdened. But in verse 26, when he sees this promise of the Lord about what will come, how the Lord is going to satiate the weary soul and replenish the sorrowful soul, notice what then Jeremiah says in verse 26. He awakes and he looks around and his sleep is sweet to him. Many times in the book, Jeremiah is very burdened. He's very weary. He's carrying a lot as he is continuing to try to encourage people to come to the Lord and they just refuse to. But when he sees a glimpse of what the Lord's purpose is, he's able to rest. He's able to have that load removed. He's able to be able to sleep sweetly. Now, you don't have to raise your hand this morning, but how many of you have ever woken up at night because you're burdened about something? Because you're weary about something? We understand what Jeremiah is talking about here. Maybe not the same situation, but we have understood this. If we go fourthly this morning in our text, back to verse 29 in Matthew 11, we see the surrender of the call. The surrender of the call. Verse 29. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's a surrender here. Apparently there is a yoke that we have on us, or a different type of yoke we're carrying, and Jesus calls us to take instead his yoke upon us. There's a transfer there. There's a surrender there. You know, life does not work very well when we do it our way, does it? 
It, it just does not work out very well when we do it our own way. We are called to surrender, to lay it down. And Jesus specifically is saying to take his yoke upon us, and then there's a process to learn of him and to learn more about him personally, to discover his heart, that he's gentle and lowly in heart. We come to personally draw closer to him. And so we lay down the other yokes as we continue to come to Jesus. It's a repeated thing. And we lay down the way that we are living. Not just the burden, not just the problem. We learn a new way to live because we take Jesus' yoke upon us. And now we're going to be plowing with him. We're going to be living life his way, not just our own way. That's the call of discipleship in this passage. And then I want us to see something else as well. In Jeremiah chapter 31, where we just were, and verse 34, later on in his um, prophecy here in this same passage, we saw Jeremiah speaking of waking up and being able to rest in the Lord and about the Lord satiating the weary soul, replenishing the sorrowful soul. Well, in that same chapter, when you jump down to verse 34, you find a prophecy about the new covenant, that the Lord is going to come. He's going to do away with the old covenant the Israelites were living under, and he's going to send a new covenant. And this new covenant is one in which the children of Israel are going to be able to know the Lord. I'm going to actually back up to verse 34. And it says this, but this is the covenant I will make with Israel after those days, says the Lord. This is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. We see that one of the promises of the new covenant is that we will know the Lord. Under the old covenant, only certain people got to really know God. Only the priests or the prophets or the kings for a period of time would be able to be, have the Holy Spirit come upon them. And that was all they knew. They did not have the blessing of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is uh, being pointed to here when it says that no longer will we as people simply point to one another and say, know the Lord, but rather we will know him. We won't just be saying, know about the Lord. We won't just be saying, follow him. We will know him personally. Remember what we read there back in uh, chapter 11 and verse 29 of our main text. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And what are we going to learn? We're going to know him. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Our peace is rooted in knowing him, not in ourselves, not in simply learning some way to put a problem down, but in coming to know Jesus in the midst of it, in the midst of it. So Jesus' call is to come to know him, to learn his way, to learn uh, taking his way of doing things upon our shoulders, attaching ourselves to him and plowing together. There's still a yoke and there's still something going on here. We'll get into that in weeks ahead, but we now are going to be doing it with the Lord and not on our own. We also see fifthly, we also see fifthly here, healing is because of the choice to receive the call. Healing is because of the choice to receive the call. You see, we can never, ever earn anything. The only thing the person here that is hearing Jesus' call in Matthew 11, the only thing you and I to do can, uh, today can do if we are thirsty for the Lord and we are burdened and we desire to come to Him, the only thing we can do is choose to receive what He has already done what he has provided on the cross for us. Not just dealing with our sins, but dealing with our shame and dealing with the burdens that afflict us. Jesus did those things for us. And our healing is based on receiving what he has done. We can't earn it. That's what I'm trying to get at this morning. Everything we have from God is received as a child that receives it from his heavenly Father. If you turn with me to John chapter 5, there is a very interesting story here. And it's very well known in Christian counseling circles. Uh, John chapter 5, if you turn there. We're going to find a guy that has been in a certain condition for a very long period of time. He has been bearing a particular struggle in his life. It's a physical infirmity he's had in his life for a long time. But I want you to notice what Jesus asks him. Because it's very, very interesting. Very interesting what Jesus asks him. So John chapter 5, and we're going to find verses 5 through 6. 
we're going to find a man here uh, that has been laying by a poolside for many, many years waiting for healing. Verse 5, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. 38 years of having this particular struggle in their life. It was a physical thing for this gentleman. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition. I want you to notice those words. When you are heavy laden and you are carrying a burden, there's a condition, is there not, that you find yourself in for a long period of time. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Why would Jesus ask him that? Why would Jesus ask this guy that had been caring for 38 years this physical infirmity in his body? Because Jesus was calling him to be honest and broken about would he respond in faith to the Lord. Jesus wasn't just about performing the miracle for him. He was getting to the root of the man's heart. Do you want to be whole is another way of saying that. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healthy? Or do you just want this problem in your life to go away? Those two things are not the same. Wanting a problem to go away in our life and wanting to be whole in the Lord are not the same thing. We're going to come back to that in a minute. So we see these five things in our passage this morning, but I want to then deal with three barriers that we also see in this text. Three barriers that keep us from coming to the Lord when we're weary and we're burdened. These are three particular ways, three strategies that the enemy uses to keep us on the track of continuing to carry the burden in our own strength. First of all, the barrier number one of a double mind. The barrier of a double mind. In verse 2 and 3 of our passage, a couple weeks ago, we, we unpacked this when we looked at John the Baptist. And it says, And when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John the Baptist had declared, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. He hears what Jesus is doing, and he wants to experience that freedom. One of the first things that Jesus says we have record of when he went to Nazareth is he proclaims liberty for the captive. Now, if John has heard that particular statement, that prophecy that Jesus has said he has come to do, don't you think John would be wondering, why am I in prison then if you've come to free the captive? He's asking the question, why is the Messiah not delivering us literally? And that is why he then sends his disciples, while he himself is in prison, to ask, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or do we look for another? What is going on in John's mind? He's doubting. He's insecure. You could use all those labels. But he is double-minded because he's looking at the issue from both sides. Do you see that in his question in verse 3? Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? He has two opinions going on in his mind. And this is a barrier that could have kept him from Jesus if he kept stewing on it. But rather, he takes that to Jesus. Do you see that this morning? John was in prison physically, but he also was in prison mentally. Because he's wrestling with this question, and he doesn't know the answer, so he brings it to Jesus. Back in Jeremiah chapter 6, we flip back there yet again. Jeremiah chapter 6, one of the passages that commentators believe Jesus is referring to in Matthew 11, the end of the, the chapter, when he gives his famous statement, the verses that we tend to know very well. John, uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, and we're going to find verses 16 through 19. Notice what the Lord is beckoning the Israelites to do, but yet they reject it. It is a call to come, but they're going to refuse to come. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for old paths where the good way is. In other words, you're on the wrong path. Get right on the good old path and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Verse 17, and I also will set watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. The, the watchmen would sound the alarm. The enemy is coming, but they would not listen to that. Verse 18, therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people. Why is the calamity coming? Because they're rejecting coming to the Lord. They're choosing to continue to do things their own way. 
They're choosing to continue to carry the burdens on their own. And then I want you to notice the phrasing here. This is very powerful. The fruit of their thoughts. Let, let me back up. Verse 19. Here, or behold, I will certainly bring this calamity on this people. What is the calamity? The fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. Why does the judgment of God come to nations? Fundamentally, it's because we reject him, and so we get the fruit of our thoughts. Why do we see the things happening in our nation today? Because of the lies, the thoughts of the enemy that as a nation we've wholesale bought lies, hook, line, and sinker into. We talked about that a little bit last week, particularly how the feminist movement and men and women trying to be one another back in the 50s, 60s on now has gotten to the point where people want to change their pronouns. They want you to participate in their delusion and they want to make permanent changes to themselves to identify as something they are not. Why has that happened now after a couple generations? Because of the fruit of a lie, because of the fruit of their thoughts. The calamity that comes upon us is because of us rejecting to agree with God's truth. And I'll be very clear. I'm not talking about mind over matter. I'm not talking about positive thinking. None of that junk. Just are we believing God's truth or are we rejecting it? That is what the scripture is saying here. And when we reject it, we are embracing a double mind. When we reject in our mind the truth that will set us free, we choose to remain bound. It's really no surprise. We choose to believe a lie and reject what God is giving us that will set us free. We choose to remain uh, bound. And that cuts us off from rest in our soul. Fear and faith cannot have an equal place in our mind. They cannot have an equal place. And I think that's what you see going on in John here in our main text. And it's a key strategy, a barrier that Satan uses against us as well. If you turn to James chapter 1, James chapter 1 this morning, let's look a little more at what double-mindedness is. Uh, Hebrews and then the book of James this morning. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And this is going to deal with us uh, and how we pray and how we approach the Lord. And it says this, But let him ask in faith and with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's constantly this battle in our life between fear and between faith. And one of the ways that Satan many times attacks us with fear is through doubt. Just a little something, just a little question to get us to be a little fearful. Is that not what he did with Eve? Did God really say just so a little bit of doubt, just enough to get us to begin to waffle double-mindedly. And when we have that type of mindset, we cannot receive from the Lord. Remember, we can never earn anything from God. We simply receive it as a child from His Heavenly Father, or we reject it because we choose to go back to the slavery that we've been called to be delivered from. And that's what we see the Israelites do throughout the Old Testament. God sets them free, and they continue to choose to want to go back to slavery for whatever reason. It is something that does not make sense, but we struggle with the exact same thing in our life today. Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. Paul is teaching about the mind and about our sonship. We were in Romans chapter 8 quite a bit last week about how we are adopted as children of God and nothing can ever separate us from his love regardless of what we go through, regardless of what we feel. Nothing can separate us from his love because now we are his children because of what Jesus has done for us when we have chosen to believe in him. We are now children of God. But Romans chapter 8 and verse 6 tells us this. It says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Let me read that to you in the Christian Standard Bible, uh, the CSB translation. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Which way are we living? If we have God's truth, it is his truth from our mind that then works itself out in our life that sets us free. It gives us life and peace. We have his rest in our soul when we come to him and we begin to learn of him and we begin to rest in him. But when we continue to do things in our own strength, in our own way, in our own flesh, it is death. And is that not such an appropriate descriptor of what life is like, doing things our own way rather than God's way? <clears throat> the double mind is attempting to serve two masters. 
to attempt to have two opinions and to see things both ways. And by the way, I'm sure we've all been double-minded at one point. I'm sure you've done this. For example, have you ever waffled between two or maybe even more than two things on what you're going to make for dinner or what you're going to eat? You ever done that? What about after church when you're trying to decide what restaurant to go to? That can take a very long time because we can be double-minded. We, we understand how this happens in our life. The same thing happens spiritually. And so we have to choose to make a choice and to make the choice to come to Jesus with the double-mindedness. Not to wait until we somehow make up our mind, but to come weary, to come burdened, just like John does in Matthew 11. He doesn't let that be a barrier. He comes to Jesus with it. And then Jesus answers him, and Jesus addresses it. But Jesus also goes much deeper, and he comforts John. And we're going to see that later on in this passage as well. There's something else going on in John's heart that he's kind of missing it. He's looking at the surface level of his double-mindedness of a question he has, but there's something deeper, and we're going to see that later on this morning. I want us to notice one more thing here before we move on to the second barrier. And I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 11 that when John was in prison, he couldn't leave. He had to send his disciples to go ask the question of Jesus, didn't he? This is for somebody this morning. John's answer was not instantaneous. He's in prison. He has to send two other people. And so he had to wait upon the Lord to receive the answer, but he still brought it to him. Sometimes when we come to the Lord, it's not an instantaneous fixing of the problem. I think sometimes we expect it to be, and we definitely want it to be, but Jesus is calling us in this passage not to just come once, but to repeatedly keep coming. And sometimes we have to wait on him for the answer because he's dealing with something deeper. The second barrier this morning Barrier number two, and there's three parts to this, but let me address the first two parts. First of all, the second barrier is a lack of brokenness, and so we buck the yoke. We're not broken, so we kick off the yoke that Jesus wants us to take on. That will actually set us free, and yet we are afraid of it. Verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I opened up with the question this morning, can you help somebody who does not want to be helped? We saw in John chapter 5 where Jesus asked this man, do you want to be made well? And that may kind of be kind of crazy to us. Why would you ask that question of somebody, Jesus? Because the Lord, although he is sovereign, he chooses not to force himself in our life. He's a loving father. Remember, we saw that a couple weeks ago. We see his sovereignty in this text through the lens of his fatherhood. Verse 25, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. It is the fatherhood of God that is the lens through which we view the sovereignty of God as believers. And because of that, as a loving father, he doesn't force us to do things. He allows us to learn things the hard way and to experience brokenness so that then we will receive the blessing that is meant to protect us. So if we're not broken, if we don't want to be whole, it tends to be that nobody or nothing can help us, can they? People can encourage you, people can come alongside you, but if you don't want to get whole, people can't help you. Counselors will many times ask you that question in the very beginning if you ever talk with a, a sound biblical counselor, because they understand if you do not want to be whole, they can't do anything. All that they can do is encourage you, and all that encouragement of people will end up doing, if you don't have a desire to be made whole, is you're simply going to build a sin castle in your life, another stronghold of some confidence about yourself or your past or rationalizing things away. We have to be broken in order to receive the Lord's mercy. And so the Lord is sovereign, and He's in control, and in His mercy, as Scripture says, He leads us to repentance. He leads us to changing our mind of turning around from walking one way of doing life to doing a 180 and walking with Him, a new way of doing His life His way. Repentance is a lifestyle and not a one-time event. If you think that because you've turned to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that repentance is done, you've checked that box and nothing ever is going to go wrong again in your life, you are missing a lot of truth. You see, as Christians... We not only come to Jesus with the sins that we have committed, but we also are called to come to him with the sins of things we've omitted. That's known as sins of omission and commission. Things we omit from obeying in our life and things we commit which we know are wrong. And there are many believers that do not commit things that they know are wrong, but they omit trusting God. 
They omit spiritually fighting the battle to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. They omit having a spiritual warfare posture, as we learn in Ephesians 6, dressed with the armor of God, prepared to engage. And so what happens is instead, they take on a country club posture. Basically complacent. I'm going to heaven, and life is just this way, but I'm going to go to heaven one day and everything will be okay. Maybe you have not sinned by committing something, but have you sinned by omitting something in your life? Is that the burden that you are carrying? Is that the lie that you are heavy laden with and bound by? Secondly, under that point this morning of barrier number two, embrace the blessing of brokenness. Embrace it. Embrace God allowing the brokenness to come so that you can receive what he's doing in your life. You see, as a good parent, he'll tell you not to touch the hot stove. He'll swat your hand away a few times. But if you keep doing it, he'll let you touch it so that you learn. And that is the blessing of brokenness. Embrace that. And even though we touch it, he's told us not to, and we come crying, and Lord, why did you let me do this? He does not rebuke us. He picks us up in his arms, and he comforts us, and he takes us through it, does he not? Just like a loving parent. Verse 25, we saw last week when Jesus is speaking. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. When you're carrying a burden in your life, this is a particular way in which you will have Satan tempt you not to yield to the brokenness of God. And that is to focus on intelligence, to try to just figure it out on your own. Notice what Jesus is saying here in verse 25. Intelligence isn't the solution and it's not the problem. You can be wise, but that doesn't mean you're going to understand this. You have to come as a child of God. Only those who come that way can understand this. And so intelligence is not the solution, and it's not the problem. Let me see. I'm going to skip ahead in my notes a little bit here for sake of time. When you are broken and you come, things may not change right away, but keep coming to Jesus. And remember this. Time does not heal all things. Only Jesus can heal things. Time will not alone heal things. So we embrace the blessing of brokenness. In verse 19, Jesus was trying to encourage the crowds to do this. He was trying to encourage them to overcome the barrier of not being broken by choosing to allow God to break them by understanding that they have been rejecting his truth and in that brokenness to be able to come to him. But in verse 19, instead, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. You see, the crowd was not repenting. Before this, Jesus also addressed how they viewed John the Baptist. Instead, they were looking at the fact don't miss this, that Jesus was spending most of his time with broken people. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that. And so they were trying to say that Jesus must be a fraud. If he's spending all of his time with the hurting and the broken, if he's engaging in dinner parties, he, they called him a drunk because he would drink wine at times. They called him a glutton because he was going to dinner parties with the people that were hurting and broken, and he was sharing with them the truth. The crowds decided to look at that and to use that as a barrier between them and God and choose not to be broken by the message Jesus was preaching. In other words, they were effectively believing the lie. Jesus, you're a hypocrite. You're not living a victorious life. You're not hanging out with the rich and famous. You're hanging out with the poor and the broken. Do you see that? They were not embracing the brokenness of God in their life, and it kept them from coming to him. I apologize in your notes, you got a wrong reference for the next couple passages. Uh, it's not Psalm 24, but it's Psalm 34:18. Embrace the blessing of brokenness. Psalm 34:18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such as have a contrite spirit. The Lord comes in the midst of our brokenness. Jesus went to the hurting. They were the ones that were broken and were able to receive, the ones who were not broken. Or like a horse that's unbroken. You can't do anything profitable with them. And secondly, we find in Psalm chapter 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God, notice it's not going to say are offering something extravagant, are not offering a, a huge financial gift, are not offering some real expensive animal with lots of blood. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. The Lord knows what the real issue is. 
That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11 that when we come to him, he'll give us the true rest we need, the rest for our soul. We come to him broken and contrite, and God will not despise that. He will not reject us in the midst of that. Lastly this morning, barrier number three. Barrier number three, which we see in verses two and three and in verse six. I told you we'd come back around to John, and here's where we're going to come back around to him with. The third barrier is desiring to be fixed rather than made whole. Desiring to be fixed rather than to be made whole. Desiring the problem, whatever it is we see going on in our life, whatever the burden is that we think it is, desiring that to go away and to come to Jesus with that rather than to truly be made whole. Again, what did John, uh, Jesus ask in John chapter 5? He asked that man, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? Not just do you want this problem in your life to go away. Those two things are not the same question. Wanting health versus wanting a cure or a band-aid or a medication is not the same thing. Wanting symptom relief is not the same thing as wanting uh, true health. And, and you've probably seen this many times. I, I know I've seen this uh, a lot of times in the workplace. I remember um, co-workers would have a fever, and so they just pop medicine on the job and keep working to finish out their shift. And what you should have done is you should have gone home and rested, right? But instead, you just try to medicate the problem and you don't focus on getting well. And if you do that long enough and if you live that way, that creates a lot of other problems. In verses 2 and 3, when John is in prison, and he's in prison literally, and we've also said he's in prison mentally, he's asking this question, are you the coming one or do we look for another? He's having this double-mindedness, but there's something much deeper than what he thinks the problem is. John thinks the problem is Jesus has not freed me from prison like he said, that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord and to set the captive free. Is he the coming one, or do we wait for another? Do we wait for another to come and to overthrow the Romans and bring the literal, physical setting us free that we want to see? The disciples ask this question many times as well. But there's something deeper, and that we discover in verse 6. Because Jesus responds to John's disciples. He tells them to look at the fact that he's working in individual lives, that he is spiritually setting people free, but maybe not always literally setting them free. And we still can struggle with this many times as well. Because the Lord does not always fix every situation, but he gets to the root of the problem. The root of the problem for John was in verse 6. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John finds himself in prison. John himself knew earlier on, he'd said it with his own lips, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. If you study the timeline of how the events seem to play out in John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, John's ministry was probably about six months long. He was six months older than Jesus. He begins to preach. Crowds begin to come to him. There's this massive movement of people being prepared to respond and be ready to hear what Jesus is going to say. And John recognizes that he has to decrease and Jesus must increase. But when he finds himself in prison, he gets to the point where he begins to be offended by the fact that it seems that he's just being forgotten over here alone. That Jesus has not brought him on as his right-hand man. That seems to be what many commentators will say John is most likely thinking in prison. We don't know exactly. But Jesus does say, blessed is the person not offended because of me. And he's speaking directly to John. So there's some type of offense here. John wants the problem to be fixed of knowing whether Jesus is the Messiah or not, wanting to be out of prison. But he's not recognizing there is a deeper issue going on in his heart. And that's what Jesus addresses because Jesus wants him to be healed, to be whole from the very core of who he is. Are we asking the Lord to fix us, but not change us? Do we come to Jesus because we recognize we have a burden, but do we have no intention of learning a new way to live? Coming to Jesus, asking him to fix us or to fix a situation is different than desiring him to make us whole. It's a different way. Health is more than surgery. It's more than a one-time event. Health is a lifestyle, is it not? And it takes time many times. Jesus' focus throughout his ministry and still today as he ministers to us from heaven and by his spirit and through his people 
is he wants us to be whole. He wants us to experience the true healing deep down. So we have rest for our souls, not so that our problems just go away. But Satan will throw that in our life as a barrier. You see, I've heard it many times. Pastor, I've tried coming to Jesus, but he just didn't fix me. Okay, there we are right there. Wanting fixing rather than wanting Jesus. And giving up because the problem didn't go away rather than truly wanting Jesus. Look back at our main text again, verse 29. Only back to 28. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. You recognize you have something that you can't take care of yourself, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. But notice what Jesus is pointing to here. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is not saying, come to me just so I can fix you. He says, come to me so that you can know me. To come to me broken. He's not asking them to simply get fixed up in life. He's asking them to come to him. Now, I'm not saying sin is okay. Don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. But we can want fixing rather than wanting Jesus. Now, this may be hard for some of us to believe, but Jesus loves us even when we're hurting and broken and being difficult. Matthew 11 is not a promise of being bubble-wrapped from life when we come to Jesus, but it's an invitation to do life with Jesus. And that's what makes the difference. But so often in our world, rather than loving the broken person, we as humans tend to want to fix them or want them to go fix themselves before we engage. And Jesus, unlike the rest of the world, says, just come to me just as you are. He will change you. But he's going to deal much deeper than what you think is going on in your life. Jesus loves those we see in Scripture and us in order to heal us, not fix us. He wants to heal us, not fix us. Not to just fix them, but to make them whole. And it is a journey. Just recently I was talking with a guy who, uh, I know his story fairly well. Many times he has been rejected by uh, churches and by other Christians because he continues to struggle with some certain things in his life. And he made this statement recently while I was talking with him. He said, I just I keep trying harder because I'm not where I want to be in my sanctification. I keep working on my own sanctification to become more like Jesus. And I responded to him, you know, I'm not where I want to be in my sanctification either. But as believers, we're not called to simply try harder and carry the burden harder and harder to be better. We are called to come to Jesus with the burden and to live from his finished work. Jesus is not only our redemption and our justification, he is also our sanctification. He works that process in us. We just come to him and we take on his yoke and we get to know him better. We don't have to live striving to be better. We live from rest in what Christ has done. We can come to learn from living from a place of enjoying his completed work not doing so in our own strength. And that is really fundamentally what the gospel is about. It is not about working harder. It is about learning to rest more in what Jesus has already done. And we live from that rest. We don't work for rest. And our soul can experience the rest that only he can give. So Matthew 11 is not about a cure. It's not about a quick fix. It is not there as a scripture to simply tell people who are hurting and burdened, knock it off and put it down. But rather, it is an invitation to come just as you are to come to know Christ in the midst of what you're going through. And yes, you will change, but this new life he's calling you to live is nothing like what you are living now. It's to, it's to come on is what he's saying in the passage. Come on over here. And let's walk life together. Is that not what Jesus is saying in context in our passage? This morning as we are going to move into our time of, of decision and our time of um, just reflecting on what the Lord has shown us in his word this morning, I, I do want to ask if you bow your head for just a moment. You may find it helpful to close your eyes just to have a quiet moment with the Lord. Is there something the Lord has brought to light in your life that you need to bring to Him this morning? And maybe there's something that you have continued to bring to Him over and over again, but at the same time, it's something you're so ashamed of that you keep it hidden. In James 5.16, it says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
See, Satan can get us to believe a lie. He can get us to believe a burden about our identity. He can get us to believe a burden about shame, that Jesus can never take that away, that we can never be free, that we can never walk in freedom in him and can never be healed. Are we believing those lies or are we trusting Christ? Sometimes the step that we need to take is to confess, I've not done something wrong, but I have omitted something wrong in my life. I've been believing a wrong lie. I've been trusting in the wrong thing. Will you bring that to the light? James 5.16 is not telling us to confess our sin, our burden to someone else, so that they can heal us. Rather, it is saying that by confessing and bringing into the light what we're struggling with, sin begins to lose its grip. And through the prayer of bringing that to the Lord, our fervent and effective prayer of righteousness avails much. So we're going to move into our time of decision in just a moment. Simply respond however God is leading you. We're going to have a song that we're going to play on the screen. And you are welcome to sing along with that or to respond however the Lord leads you. But during this time, Jesus has called us to come to him. He's called us to rest in him, whatever we carry. And it may be this morning that there's something you're carrying that he's calling you to bring into the light. You don't have to tell every detail to somebody else. But when you begin to share with somebody else you're struggling and they can pray with you and for you, you are able to receive God's grace from somebody else. You see, many times how Satan keeps us bound with the burdens we carry is we keep them secret and we are proud about them. We live in our mess and we never are transparent enough to admit to someone else that we are struggling with it. And so we cut ourselves off from receiving the grace and the blessing of God of another believer being able to point us to Jesus and pray with us. So this morning, how is the Lord leading you? Respond to him however he leads you.